Hello and welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast as we continue our series theme focusing on refugees and people who seek asylum. Today we speak to Callum Dawkins from Bristol Refugee Rights who talked to us about the organisation and its role in Bristol. He also spoke about the current environment for refugees in the UK which has continued to develop even since our last episode. Indeed, while Callum talked about the offshoring proposal to Rwanda, further details have emerged since we spoke, clarifying that this will be a one-way ticket for those who will be sent to Rwanda regardless of the outcome. This situation remains changeable and there is significant scrutiny of the scheme underway. Nevertheless, it could begin within a few weeks. Today I've got a guest here from Bristol Refugee Rights and I'm going to let him himself. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are? My name is Callum Dawkins. Uh, I work for Bristol Refugee Rights. I'm an individual giving fundraiser. I recently finished my master's in international development with the University of Manchester, came back to my hometown Bristol and uh, started working here. Can you tell us a little bit about Bristol Refugee Rights? Sure. So Bristol Refugee Rights, we began in 2006 as like a voluntary organisation. Since then, we've grown into the largest refugee and asylum seeker charity in Bristol. But yeah, we support refugees, people seeking asylum and people with insecure immigration status in Bristol and the surrounding area. Um, And the kind of work we do is what we describe as a holistic service where we support people with kind of every aspect of of their lives, especially in-depth and high-level advice surrounding the asylum system. We help people learn their entitlements and access wider services such as housing and access to various like benefits. While we're not a law-based organisation, we do advocate on behalf of our members to the Home Office, to the Council, to the NHS, to lawyers and other organisations, essentially to make sure that they receive the right amount of care, support and entitlements that they're, one, entitled to, but two, deserve as, as people in our society. We do provide direct things like English classes, family support and material support. So people usually join us shortly after arriving in Bristol. Every now and then we get people who have maybe been here for years, who, for whatever reason, come to us in need of help. But most of the time when people come to us, they're in a really difficult situation, whether as an asylum seeker or as someone who has got their refugee status. When they come to us, they they need help most of the time. And most of our work kind of focuses on or focuses with people in the asylum process. So they have submitted their application to claim asylum um, and they're waiting for that home office decision. There's a couple of interviews along the way, Um, but that period of time can stretch many months, often years. And it's a really troubling time for a lot of people. It can be really damaging to people's physical and emotional well-being. It can be months, years of limbo where they have to live off, you know, about £39 per week, um, have no access, or they're not allowed to work to top up that income, which is a big contentious issue at the moment, is gaining the right to work for people seeking asylum. Um, But yeah, so that's the kind of focus of our work, the people and and the kind of the area of the system that we work in. How do people actually come to you? Do they get referred through certain agencies? They just sort of look you up? What is the process of getting that support? So it's pretty varied. Like you say, yeah, a lot of people might get signposted to us from other organisations. Some are signposted to us from state organisations like the council or the home office or affiliated kind of uh, departments. 
but a, a lot of people will come to us through like word of mouth through the community. So for example, we've got a big Afghan community in Bristol. And so we're quite kind of, I would say, well known within the Afghan diasporic community in Bristol. And so if someone arrives and they're like, I need X, Y, and Z, there will be enough people to signpost them to us. And so most of the time they will phone our helpline if they have access to a phone. But a lot of the time, yeah, kind of turn up at our offices and then kind of the work starts helping them in any way we can. It is never the same. Yeah. Great. And you're just saying you've been back in Bristol a little bit um, more recently um, and started working here. What, what is your role within the organisation at the moment? So uh, my role is the individual giving fundraiser. So fundamentally, whether we like it or not, charities need money to, to run. And it can often be the dry part of the job is asking for money and getting it. But it is not tooting my own horn, but it is a very important part of the uh, of the kind of nonprofit sector. Um, we we get some institutional funding, but a lot of the a lot of the money that we need for kind of day to day costs comes from fundraising from people donating you know, monthly amounts or doing events or like at the moment we're doing a, an appeal for our earliest project. That kind of thing comes from me and so most of the time like managing relationships with donors and doing communications like social media and all that kind of stuff and yeah so so it's bringing in bringing in the money to keep it all rolling along we've had some different groups from bristol on our podcast during this series and some of them have mentioned that bristol is quite a collaborative city for some of this work and i was just interested in knowing how bristol refugee rights fits into that how does um, how do you support refugees alongside other organisations in Bristol? Yeah, so you, you touched on it there, and yeah, that's kind of the most important thing about Bristol's asylum seeker and refugee sector is, is collaboration. In recent years, we've kind of spearheaded BRASP, which you may have touched on in other podcasts, I think you did on the City of Sanctuary. It's the Bristol Refugee and Asylum Seeker Partnership. It's 16 local refugee and asylum seeker organisations, and the aim of it is to create a a network in Bristol of organisations and groups that can work together as an effective and unified and sustainable sector for all refugees, people seeking asylum, people with insecure immigration status in Bristol, so that kind of that no one slips through the net as it were. A really important part of that is kind of cutting out overlap of services, Uh, especially during kind of the depths of the pandemic. We really tried to really focus each groups and each organization's focus on their specific uh, service, which essentially in order to cut out inefficient overlaps. Um, So for example, we do a lot of signposting to kind of our partner organizations in Bristol and and they do to us, um, where we, for example, in the asylum hotels in Bristol and surrounding area, we mostly focus on advice, and that kind of, um, kind of that level of support, whereas a lot of our other partner organisations are kind of there on a more regular basis, giving food maybe, and that kind of thing. So, so when someone comes to us saying, hey, I want to give food to the hotels, which has happened recently because of a recent Bristol Post article, kind of scathing article about food that was being provided in the hotels. People come to us asking how they can give food in that situation, signpost on to uh, charities like Borderlands. If someone goes to Borderlands saying, "Hey, I really want to help. I'm a lawyer. I want to give advice," you know, they probably send them over to us. 
So it really, it really does work, proving really fruitful. And that's why Bristol was one of the leading cities for asylum seeking and refugee people uh, to live, but also as a sector, we're kind of uh, leading the way in many, in many ways. So yeah, Bristol's refugee and asylum sector is, is absolutely based on and really only works so well because of collaboration, solidarity and interdependence. This is why Bristol is and kind of always will be a city of sanctuary and a city of solidarity for all. Like whatever legislation is going through Westminster or Bristol City Council for that matter, we, the sector and the community will always be there to support and protect those seeking refuge and looking to build a new life in Bristol. Thank you. I think you just touched on what's happening in Parliament and Every time we've recorded an episode for this series, we've spoken to people about what is the current climate around refugees. And it feels like as the months have gone on, that climate has felt harder um, and it's felt like there's been lots of different developments happening in the world, happening right now in Parliament. And to, today, as we record this, there's more news that has come out of Parliament about this. What is this current climate around refugees and people seeking asylum? It is a complex time for the sector um, and obviously especially for refugees and people seeking asylum. Complex because the state, especially the national government, is pursuing hugely hostile and dangerous policies, but also complex because there is a growing, deeply compassionate citizenry who are supporting refugees and asylum seekers. So the government, as you've just touched on, is doing a lot to make life for asylum seekers and refugees in the UK really, really difficult. And that's a really simplistic way to put it, but the kind of aims of what is now known as the hostile environment, the aims of the hostile environment is to make it so that people would not want to seek asylum here. And if they're already here, they want to leave. That's the idea. And so we can see it so clearly through the National Anti and Borders Bill, which is the big one going through Parliament, back and forth in Parliament from the Commons and the Lords at the moment. That bill includes measures such as offshore detention, which I'll absolutely touch on in a second. Reducing regular, regular routes, regular being the, the kind of word for like, in inverted commas, legal routes, and then deeply and dangerously criminalizing, in inverted commas, irregular routes. So people kind of making their way here in clandestine ways. And the bill and any supporting legislation that is coming out at the moment will put already incredibly vulnerable people in huge amounts of danger and peril, such as criminalizing irregular routes and reducing regular routes will force people to take even more dangerous journeys and risk prison in the UK if they make it here, all while fleeing war and persecution in their home countries. These pieces of legislation are absolutely built to make life here unappealing, to say the least, for refugees and asylum seekers. And like you've just touched on, today there was an announcement of our offshore detention system that we signed a deal with Rwanda for a pilot of £120 million to essentially ship asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda for asylum detention and processing. Obviously, details are relatively low at the moment. It's thought that it will be men to begin with, 
but it's possible it would be people as they arrive in the UK, because also the Navy will become in charge of patrolling the channel. As people arrive in the UK, they will be detained and then pretty instantly put on a plane to Rwanda. And it is quite hard to put into put into words how dangerous and damaging this kind of legislation is. Few countries in the world do it because of how bad it is. And many people know about Australia's detention programme and how infamously awful that has been for the people who went through it. Together with Refugees published a report, I believe it was last February, called A Bill at What Price, which calculated the yearly cost of the offshore detention scheme that is now being published at $1.7 billion per year, which is a huge amount of money to do something hugely unethical and horrible. And just remember, this is coming from the government who, was it last year, said we don't have enough money to pay for free school meals over half term for many of the most vulnerable children in the UK. Extensive evidence has shown that accommodating people in these kind of offshore detention institutions is hugely damaging for their health and well-being. There's lots of family separation involved in these kind of things. And then the, the, the state of uh, kind of the quality of life in these camps is, I mean, we've seen how bad they are in the UK, right? We've seen how bad Yarlswood and these kind of detention centres can be, um, and Napier Barracks can be in the UK. The reason for offshore detention is a deterrent, and it's a deterrent because it's unappealing to go there. And if, it's, if Napier Barracks is as bad as it is, this is potentially going to be a kind of exponentially worse situation. This agreement is pretty much predicated on the fact that Rwanda, which is arguably an authoritarian dictatorship, is in such a political situation that is, it is politically and ethically salient for them to accept the UK's inhumane processing system. As a result, there are huge and unresolvable worries about the safety and security of those detained there. To put it in perspective, we, the UK, accept people who flee Rwanda due to state persecution. So we accept people seeking asylum from a country that we wish to send people who have already fled war and persecution. The government itself warned about Rwanda's restrictions on media freedom and civil society as recently as last year. And the Home Office's own figures show that the UK even gave asylum to Rwandan refugees as recently as 2021. Under these new powers, Priti Patel would have returned those refugees to Rwanda. The Rwandan government curbs media freedom, so that will make it hugely difficult for journalists to kind of check abuses of power in these camps. And groups of vulnerable refugees, such as torture survivors and LGBTQ plus refugees, are almost certainly going to be re-traumatised and put in unbelievably vulnerable situations. Bella uh, Sankey, in, a, in, a, in an article in The Guardian, I think it was last year, from Detention Action, said, sending children and trafficked people and torture survivors to be detained in offshore facilities for years on end will lead to immense human suffering and a shameful legacy. Australia's on offshore camps allowed rampant sexual and physical abuse, cost over £2 million per person per year, and did nothing to prevent dangerous boat crossings. This kind of puts into perspective what we've seen in the UK for quite a while now, the kind of cracking down, as the Tories would like to see it, on small boat crossings across the channel. And I mean, I think it was last year, there was about, or the year before, there was about 8,000 small boat crossings, or 8,000 people through that arrived through small boat crossings. And in the most recent years, 23,000. 
is obviously because we've closed down the regular routes because of it would arguably because of COVID, but it like it's part of the same project to close down the regular routes to people arriving. Deterrents in this sector and in many sectors don't work. Um, all they do is immiserate huge numbers of people. For what reason? We don't know. And it is a clear breach of Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which, I mean, I don't even know if we follow that anymore, that is, which is an issue. But we know from the experience of Syrian and Ukrainian refugees that if refugees have access to safe routes, they use them. People don't want to get in a small boat. People don't want to climb onto the back of a lorry. People would love to be able to get on a plane safely and just fly here. But because we close those down, they don't have access to them. And now those people who would happily and, and would love to just get here safely are going to have to go through these insanely dangerous routes to get to the UK. And then once they get here, be sent to Rwanda. So despite its rhetoric recently on Ukraine, which I'm sure we can touch on, the government has shown its true colours when it comes to welcoming refugees. So yeah, at BRR, we really want to fight this as much as possible. There's going to be many protests against the Rwandan scheme. It is an inhumane, expensive and ineffective proposal. Yeah, and we, we're going to fight it every step of the way. You were just saying a little bit about Ukraine there. Is that a bit of a juxtaposition between this kind of hostile environment, some things that are being said about Ukrainian refugees or, or different approaches, but then from the evidence it still seems that uh, Ukrainian refugees getting visas is still very difficult. Is, is there what's happening there? Yeah, you've, you've really touched on the kind of nuance of the situation there. So the first point I'd touch on is, yes, the government has opened up these safe routes of passage for Ukrainian refugees, which we welcome absolutely. It's brilliant. All refugees should be given this kind of access. But you're absolutely right. The policy, the scheme itself is deeply flawed. At Bristol Refugee Rights, we're obviously more than aware of the scheme that the government has put in place to help Ukrainian refugees get here and get here safely. And we welcome that overwhelmingly. It's excellent and we love it. We want to see more of it. But the scheme itself does create significant inequalities. The scheme tells refugees from other nations that they are less important than white Ukrainians. This kind of idea has been compounded by the House of Commons. In pretty much the same week, they're saying, welcome refugees from Ukraine, all of this. They voted in favour of Nationality and Borders Bill, which seeks to criminalise the vast majority of those seeking sanctuary in the UK. So we have mixed feelings about it. Whilst we don't want anyone to have to deal with the asylum system, we also have major concerns about the tiered system that is being created through these kind of schemes in which black and brown refugees are less welcome than white ones. We are also concerned that no one is mentioning Russian refugees. Many Russians are standing up and demonstrating against their government and risking their lives in doing so. We've all seen videos of Russian protests and being brutally um, shut down and many, 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 many arrests happening. It is very dangerous for Russians to be protesting the war, and many are, are fleeing Russia and, and seeking refuge in Europe and, and in the UK. No one is mentioning those, those people, and no one is mentioning people in Ukraine who are not Ukrainian nationals, such as people who already sought sanctuary there, 
who will now be fleeing and who are not applicable under the UK's Ukrainian refugee scheme. That is not good. And that is why, like you touched on, that is the really important nuance that is needed when discussing these policies. So we cannot and we, we should not ignore the government's hugely differential and discriminatory approach to the Ukraine refugee crisis compared to previous ongoing refugee crisis. Safe and legal routes should be open to all refugees from anywhere in the world. And the UK must take its fair share of people in need of safety. So yes, it is hugely complex. We absolutely welcome the outpouring of kindness and support for the victims of the invasion of Ukraine, but wish it could be extended and deepened and improved for all people fleeing war and or persecution. You alluded earlier to this idea that perhaps alongside this building of hostility at a political level, there is also a development of people who do want to get involved, who are kind of expressing this compassion towards refugees, people who are seeking asylum. What can people do to help perhaps generally and then specifically with your organisation here? Uh, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. So yeah, there's a massive growing movement of support for refugees and people seeking asylum. There always has been in the UK, but certainly in Bristol, been a city of sanctuary for a long time. And even before the official title, um, and even after, we will always be a city of sanctuary. So yeah, protest is a big thing that will be happening over the next few months. Obviously, following the announcement of the Rwandan proposal, there will be many big protests outside the Home Office in the coming days and weeks. I believe on the Saturday, the 23rd of April, there'll be a big protest in Bristol, which people should absolutely attend and any protests following that. So yeah, you can write to your MP, join groups, talk to people, uh, use social media, spread awareness. It's We've all heard it before, but it does work. And with this kind of issue, it is the kind of thing that needs a mass movement of people. This government has proved time and time again that it doesn't cow to public pressure unless that pressure becomes unsustainable. And with the danger of this bill, the pressure needs to become unsustainable for them to withhold. On a more Bristol refugee rights basis, we're running an appeal at the moment uh, to raise money for our earliest project. So if people wanted to get involved, they can just donate some money to our earliest project, which provides crucial and unique support for refugee and asylum-seeking children in Bristol. It's the only service of its kind in Bristol. And as we've kind of touched on, many of the families that we support live in temporary accommodation. So their children have no access to outdoor space, to play equipment or to opportunities to socialise. So many of the children we support have big delays in language acquisition, attachment issues, problems trusting staff and other really complex needs. And fundamentally, through this project, we're kind of acting out the belief that these young children need and deserve a safe space to play, uh, to learn, to socialise, to relax and develop. It, essentially, we provide a space for them to be a child in a world that has often so far not given them that opportunity. So our crash and family support in our earliest project is a lifeline to some of the most vulnerable children in our city. So if you, yeah, if you want to know more about that, um, head over to our social media or to our website or to our Just Giving page and just donate some money. Also, if people want to get involved a different way, they can fundraise for us. If you've got a gig coming up or a bake sale or a marathon, or I don't know, you want to get sponsored to just 
go to the bar or something, anything. Just uh, make a fundraising page and fundraise for us. People can leave a gift in their will. They can sign up to our newsletter. They can check us out on social media or we've got loads of volunteering positions. Volunteers are the wheels that keep Bristol refugee rights rolling. Couldn't do without them. And if you're interested in volunteering for us in many, many different roles, head over to our website, fill out a form and we'll take it from there. You've kind of alluded to some of the things that are coming up, but what what is next? There's so much that could be done, so much that's happening in the world at the moment. What is Bristol Refugee Rights focusing on next? So in the next few months, I expect that a lot of my work, especially, will become a bit more campaign and influence focused because of the bills and everything that are coming out and reacting to those and proactively engaging against them. On a more positive note, we have an upcoming event on the 14th of June as part of Bristol Refugee Festival. We'll be doing a kind of introduction to the asylum process for people who want to learn more about an enormously complex system that I still struggle with. It's, it's a kind of an area of law and sociology that needs years and years of experience to really get to grips with. Um, so that's on the 14th of June. And yeah, we're releasing our five-year strategy in the coming weeks, which is quite an ambitious strategy of what we want to become as an organisation and what we want to focus on. Our kind of three main goals are ensuring that our services are impactful and accessible, designed to meet our users' needs and defined by trauma-informed practice. And so we're trying to embed trauma-informed practice into every aspect of our work so that all of the services we deliver deliver sustainable impact. We also want to empower and work in solidarity with people with lived experience at all levels of our organisation. It's something we're really trying to improve. Our aim is to have a pretty much at least a 50-50 split of people with or without lived experience. Um, The more the better. We're not there yet, but we're not far. That kind of goal and and strategy will really take the work we do to be much more impactful and much more successful, being led by people who essentially know what they're talking about. And finally, we have a big plan to become more influential in the sector. We consider ourselves a leader in Bristol as part of our network. We'd love to become a kind of recognised leader in the sector having worked with others to positively influence the asylum and immigration system, essentially we want to work to create a more equitable system. We recognise that unless we work towards achieving systemic change in partnership and collaboration with our friends in the sector, we will constantly just be fighting fire. Uh, We want to make the UK a safe and welcoming place for all people right now, but also into the future. And we see an integral part of that to be building our reputation and profile in the sector as a leader and a catalyst for influencing others outside of the sector to become involved, to work towards rights and safety of people seeking refuge. I'd just like to finish by saying thank you for having me, um, for giving us this platform. It's really great to be able to speak about the important work we do. Um, and to the people listening, I'd say get involved, whether it's with us, whether it's with others, get involved. Um, it is, as we have talked about a lot, it is a very 
troubling and complex time for the sector and for most importantly for the people the sector supports and it needs the most amount of support possible we are pretty much fighting against the most powerful institution in the country um, in many situations and we need people's help to do it so please get involved through social media get involved by writing to mp donate money volunteer protest do all of those things and hopefully we believe we can we can make the UK, a wholly welcoming and safe place for anyone wanting to seek refuge here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Callum, for giving up your time to speak on our podcast. We really appreciate it. And you've given us a really great insight into Bristol refugee rights and also the continuing developing situation in this country as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is really cool. I love that you're doing this with the sector in Bristol. Thank you. This podcast was produced and presented by me, Emily McGrath, with thanks to Callum Dawkins and Bristol Refugee Rights. It was brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team in association with St Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells Churches. The music was created by Scott Holmes, accessed through the Free Music Archive. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Resonate Bristol. Join us again next time.